0: You know, nothing creates more conflict in the church than money, right? That is a big pressure point for a lot of people. Um, When we start talking about money, you know, all kinds of feelings of anxiety to fear to disagreement kind of rise up within our hearts. We live in a culture where there's a lot of tension with income inequality, um, you know, global fair trade. I mean, money is a big deal because it affects our everyday life in very profound and powerful ways. All of us have goals and dreams and ideas, and all of them take money. But, you know, what's, what's curious, what's interesting to me is that the church isn't very helpful sometimes with their views of money, because we really do have some very strange views on money, and the way we have taught about money has been very manipulative, just to be honest with you, in, in ministry leadership. I don't know how many of you guys have, have heard the, the passage of the widow's mic. Right? So it's this old lady, she's a widow, she comes and she offers all that she has left, her last two cents, if you will, throws it in an offering plate. And how many pastors have you heard that have taken 40 minutes to wax eloquent on how that was a great thing for that widow to do? You read the context of that passage, Jesus is not saying that the woman did a good thing. It is actually a rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees who were allowing the widow to take her last two cents and throw it into the offering plate, hoping that it would be enough to tip God's favor in her direction. It was a rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees who should have been taking care of the widow because in that particular culture women had no value they couldn't work they they weren't marketable and so when all of the male relatives died and there was no one to take care of her it became the responsibility of the church and Jesus was rebuking people and it's these kind of things that distort our view of money and it distorts the world's view of who God is, right? Because how many people know somebody that objects coming to church because after all, all we want is their money. So today we're going to talk about how faith distorts our view of money. There are three reasons or three ways, if you will, that our faith distorts money. The first one I want to talk to you about is that it gives us a false sense of blessing. For many in our culture, God's blessing or our spirituality is gauged by the amount of money we have in our bank account, right? You ever, you ever been around somebody and you get a new car, or you get some, a new computer or, or, or watch or something like that, and people say, man, God, you know, God's just blessing you at this time. You ever heard that? Yeah. You hear that a lot. As if, you know, God pours out his favor, and the way God shows his favor is by giving you, you know, whatever it is that you want to purchase, See, this distortion comes out in two ways. The first one is prosperity gospel. This is an easy one. It's the idea that if you have enough faith, believe in your success, and give enough to the church, that one's very important. That you give enough to the church that God will bless you with incredible material wealth and physical prosperity, right? And so in some ways, we talk about tithing being like the entry point into God's blessing. And as long as we tithe, then God's going to prevent you from having major difficulties. And if you don't tithe, then God is going to get his money from you anyway because you're stealing from him after all, Micah says in the Old Testament. And so we we come up with this idea that, you know, God is just going to ruin your life. He's going to break your refrigerator. Your car's going to break down. It's going to be the exact amount of money you should have tithed. And that's God's way of getting it back in his kingdom. That is crazy. Okay? It's crazy. It's not truth. Now, having a stingy heart and an ungrateful heart and a a heart that doesn't have generosity to it, that is a real problem and that is stealing glory from God. And that's the context Micah's talking about. When we give and when we're generous and we participate in his work with our life and our finances, by the way, not just our money. Because you can throw money at something and not participate in the mission, right? It's like, God, I will give you money. Don't send me to Africa. Don't ask me to talk to my coworkers. You know, don't ask me to give my time of the church. That's my contribution to your kingdom. Write the check. Leave me alone. That's just as unspiritual. But see, prosperity gospel is that God is primarily concerned with your wealth and well-being. And the more you give, after all, God is going to continue to pour out His blessings, you know, to overflowing in your life. And that's the message. And somehow, if things don't work out, it's because you didn't have enough faith. It's such a distorted view of the gospel. It really has nothing to do with the gospel because it sets us up to believe a few things. One, that God cares about personal wealth more than generosity. And it also sets us up to believe that, that you know, our, our physical ailments are somehow God's rebuke over our life. And it's the assumption that, you know, we're never supposed to experience hardship. It's a gospel of comfort. And we, we, we send this stuff overseas like crazy. This, it's crap. <laughs> you know, we go to Africa and we go to Asia and to these developing countries that are, you know, got high starvation rates and high poverty rates. And we tell them, if you just believe this, then your, your family's not going to sick You're, you get sick and your livestock's not going to die and God's going to prosper you. And it's not a gospel. It's a false hope. And it it robs us of, of what God really wants to do in our life. See, the next one is the poverty gospel. So now we swing all the way to the other side of the pendulum. And it's the belief that money is the root of all evil. So having money is a sin. And it reveals pride, idolatry, and oppression. What's unique about the poverty gospel is that it's always, you know, we're at the center. We're at the lowest point. You know, we're okay spiritually. It's just the people that are richer than us that have somehow become greedy, money-hungry people. You know, or we think that the more spiritual you are, the more you'll sacrifice, and the less money that you have in a bank account, and the less money that you have in a bank account, the more you're relying on Jesus, and therefore you are more spiritual than the next person. And while there is some truth to the fact that we need to be relying on Jesus for everything, I don't know that it matters how much is in your bank account for you to trust in Jesus. But the poverty gospel is just as destructive. And it all begins with money is the root of all evil. That's in the Bible, isn't it? Kind of. There's a few words that are left off. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Any financial injustice that you see in the world, you can trace it back to a greedy person white-knuckling their wallet. That's what God's coming against. Greed, not wealth. What you do with your wealth determines what's really driving your heart, right? Why you're pursuing wealth and how you view yourself and others determines whether you are in line with the gospel or not. And so in this idea, it's only the poor can be godly. But both, both views fall apart. Why? Well, wealth is relative. That's the first thing, right? Wealth is a relative thing. I could turn around and tell you world statistics today that if you make $1,500 annually, you're in the top 20% wealth income earners in the world. If you make over $1,500 a year. You can't live on $1,500 a year in this country. I'm sorry. No matter where you live, you can't do it. So $1,500 a year would put you in poverty along with the rest of the world. So it's relative, right? We know wealth is relative. You know, and we do this. We know this, right? Because it's like when we read the Bible and we start hearing about the rich people, we always think about the people that have way more than us, right? You know, because we look at our checkbook and it's like, I don't feel rich. It's like... Well, my car breaks down, it hurts me just as bad as it hurts the next person. When, it, you know, when I lose my job, it hurts me just as bad as it hurts the next person. You know, 64% of our country couldn't afford a $1,000 emergency if their life depended on it. 64% of us wrestle with living check to check to check. So it's relative. So your relationship with God is not tied to your checkbook. That's another reason that it all breaks down. And we need a better view. And so corruption and righteousness are heart issues and not wallet issues. So you can have money and be corrupt, or you can have money and be righteous. And either one, you know, the wealth isn't what corrupts. It's the heart that is unredeemed. And these are the reasons why we need a better view of blessing. So this is what James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 pick up on. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich, in his humiliation. And so when we look at our economic systems and where people are, we oftentimes look at the lowly as being people that are less, right? We have this whole narrative with the Hunger Games that is basically economy and how it plays out in social status. Right, You have the 12 districts, you got some that have, some that don't, the capital that's controlling all of it, manipulating all of it. It's a very strong economic, economic message and it, and it compares different economic systems within that to show the tension that money creates within life. And so for wherever you go in the world, we look at somebody that doesn't have and we say they're in a low position, but in God's economy it says they're really in a high position. And then you see the rich and this person we say they got everything, you know, they've arrived, they're successful. They've, they've lived their dream. No matter where you go in the world, that's the way we view the rich. But in the Bible, it says that this is a place of humiliation. Why? Because God does not determine blessing by how much money you have or don't have. So prosperity gospel or poverty gospel both go away. What it means is that the person who is lowly is exalted, and a rich person is humiliated in the world system. Why? Because God's system is better. What is the point that James is trying to make here? He says, no matter how much money you have or don't have, you are deeply connected to God. And because you're connected to God, it doesn't matter what the world thinks or what you think. Poor person, because you have a relationship with God, you're exalted. You know that I'm going to care for you, that I'm going to watch over you, and I know your daily needs, and I am the source that sustains you. And people of faith that are poor live that experience every day. But then there are rich people as well that I've met that are extremely successful and extremely generous. And in the world's eyes, Because of their dependence on God, they're embracing humiliation. They're not living the good life. They're living a life where they depend on God, where they're generous. They live by a different economic system, if you will. And the way they use their wealth and the way that they display their wealth looks drastically different than what our world offers. See, this is what he's talking about. We're blessed because we're brothers in Christ, we're sisters in Christ, we're connected to the Father who loves us and cares for us. See, blessing isn't tied to the gifts; it's tied to the giver. So true blessing is knowing that God is enough and you can trust Him with all things. True blessing is knowing that God is enough, no matter how much money I have, no matter how much money I don't have, God's enough. And I can trust Him with everything, so I can live by a different set of rules, a different set of standards, a different set of principles, if you will. I can trust God in all things. Another reason that uh, faith confuses money or distorts money is it's a false sense of security and stability, right? How many of you have ever thought, if I just had more money, I would be okay, I would be stable? Just, just enough to, to pay those extra bills that are coming up, just enough to sock some money aside so when things fall apart, I can not have to put it on a credit card. All of us have wrestled with that, right? But it, it, it's, it's false. You see, money is not stable no matter where you go. See, the Bible says that it's like a flower of the grass. It's there, it's beautiful, it's attractive, but it will pass away. So he begins to unpack this idea of how foolish it is to base blessing and stability on wealth. And he says, For as the sun rises with its scorching heat... And withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's like, listen, you could have that money, you could reach that wealth, and it's gonna fade away just as fast, it's gonna cost just as much as if you didn't have it. So, like a flower, it's temporary. No matter how much you have, it goes quickly, it withers. Money is always tied to an economic system, right? No not matter where you live on a planet, but your wealth is always tied to an economic system. What's really scary is that economic system is always tied to a politician, right? And we know how crazy that gets. So we know that it, it, it withers. And it's beauty fades. You know, after a while, you just get to a point in life where you say, there's got to be more to this than money. Everything wears out. Everything fades. Everything loses its, in its wow factor. We live in a culture of upgrade and update. There's always more. There's always new. And what's beautiful today somehow loses its appeal. And that's what he's saying. To get caught up in the idea of stability and security and feeling fulfilled is a really foolish thing to do uh, with your money, to allow it to serve that purpose. And so you usually have... Two choices when things lose its beauty. To let it go and just enjoy where you are or pursue more. And so it leads to these conflicts that we have. And then the other thing that comes out is the truth is you're going to fade. Someday you're going to lose your ability to make money. Someday you're going to be completely irrelevant in your field even if you're not. You're going to be forced into retirement. You're going to have to do something with your life, and you're going to be undersold or underpaid for what you do. You're going to fade. And at the end of your life, and you look back, are you going to wish that you made more money? I have stood by the bedside of a lot of dying people in 20-something years of ministry and I've yet to hear anybody, believer or not, wish that they had more money. They always wish they had more time. They had made more time. They had spent their time more wisely. They had valued people in their life more than their ambitions and pursuits. So there's a tension that's there. So wealth and security does not equal, or wealth does not equal stability and security. And the promise of life and the love of Jesus does. See, this is what's unique for the believer. Everybody on the planet can enjoy great friendships. Everybody on the planet can live at some level of good. But very few people, apart from a change of heart, can find true contentment. And Jesus offers us life, a life that is not wasted, a life that is not just consumed, but a life that invests and changes the world around us. See, in James chapter 1, the next verse in verse 12, he ends like this. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Every day we live in a system that pressures us financially, no matter who you are, where you are that tension, how am I going to spend my time today? How am I going to spend my money today? Am I going to have enough to pay my bills today? Am I going to have my job tomorrow? We all live with this trial each and every day. What will we allow to define us? That's the trial. And he says, blessed is the man. This is where the real blessing is. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast, who rests, stands firm in their relationship with the Father. That person is blessed. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. What's the crown of life? When you think of crowns, you think of a few things. You think of royalty. You think of reward. You think of accomplishment. When he says the crown of life, it's getting to the end of your life and realizing that you ran the race well and your life was worthy It was a winning life. It was a royal life. It was a great, meaningful life. Jesus says, You rest in my relationship. You trust me. You walk with me. You follow me. I promise, because I love you, that your life will matter. No money involved. See, this is what God has for us. That's real security. The third reason or way that faith distorts money is that it gives us a false sense of worth, right? A false sense of worth. Let me ask you a question today. How do you see yourself? If you have a low self worth or esteem, the question of reflection I want to ask you today is, why? Why do you feel that way? It's usually a performance issue, something that you have accomplished or not accomplished, something you have or you don't have, right? Something you feel like you deserve but didn't get. Let me ask some of you guys that are sitting here saying, well, I feel good about myself. My question is, why? Why do you feel good about yourself? Why do you feel like you have a sense of worth? Is it tied to accomplishment or possession? Or is it deeply rooted in the fact that you have worth because God loves you, God's present in your life, and you can walk with Him each and every day? And the question is if your circumstance were to change and you were to suddenly feel worth or have the foundation of your worth rattled, where would you land? would you turn to him or would you blame him because see that is the real issue do we turn to him when things are going well because we enjoy being with god and it's not just about how he has blessed us and given us a moment of peace and contentment do we just do we genuinely love him and appreciate him in our life when and how do you know well when things go bad how do you respond And I'm not talking about falling on your face and weeping. Listen, I get it. We've made horrible financial choices, and it has cost us dearly. And it's our fault. It's not God's fault. And I've still fallen on my face and saying, God, I don't know how to fix this mess. This is going to be around for a while. This is going to follow us for 10, 15, 20 years. What do we do? But we were willing to turn to him. And that's where we realize that we have a loving Father that doesn't condemn us. (laughs) We do have a loving Father that sustains us. Did He miraculously wipe out our debt? Absolutely not. Did we ever go without anything? Never. Our worth is tied to Jesus. Not what we owe, not what we spend not what we save. Our worth is tied to Jesus, knowing him. See, go back up to that verse. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. It's really easy for the brother that doesn't have much to think that his life is less, that he didn't live up to his full potential, that somehow he missed God's blessing in his life. And Jesus is like, listen, dude, you need to boast. You need to brag. You need to glory, is another thing. Gloat in the fact that you're mine. That you are worth so much that I gave my life to redeem you. A rich man has every right to think, man, my life has meaning and purpose. I've, you know, I've arrived, I have achieved, I have lived up to my expectation, I have helped shape economies globally, I employ 30,000 people, I have done my part. It's really easy for a rich person to say that. But when he looks at his worth and says, you know what, none of those things mean worth, I gladly humiliate myself, bring myself down to a point of humility and say that my greatest worth is found in Jesus. See, that's, that's worth. A life in God's hands is what brings meaning and worth. It's the only place that you can go that doesn't expect you to bring a return for the investment. Everywhere else in life, make the grade, you get the reward. Do the work, you get the pay. Pay the bills, you keep the stuff. Everything else is transactional. Grace is not. Come to me as you are. I love you as you are. On your bad days, you're just as valuable to me as your good days. It's irrelevant to my love and grace to you. Why? Because you're you. See, this is where our value is found. Another question to ask you, whether you really get a sense of worth from God or from what you have or don't have, how do you see others? So it's not just about how you see yourself, but how you see others. When you you pull up at the intersection, you're seeing that guy out there saying, homeless vet, need help, give money, how do you view that person? There's a tension there, isn't there? Part of us wants to believe that this guy needs really, really needs help. And at other times we're wondering, does he really need help at all or is he just kind of freeloading off of everybody? But what do you see about that person? Are they valuable to God? And if they're valuable to God, how should we respond? Let me peel back an ugly little secret about ministry. I was doing my church planting assessment. I had to give a 10-minute message on my vision for the church and how it came out of Scripture. And for me, it was um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, if I actually love God, it will show in the way I love people. And people really need to see the love of God. That's all I had at that point, is just a heart where I wanted to step outside of the religious routine and the teachings and say, I really want my faith to be real to me, and I want it to be presented in the community in a way that would really change the way people see themselves and see God. On the back side of that, all of my pastor peers that were assessing me, telling me whether I was called or able to do this or not. Came back and said, man, we really commend you because man, you you definitely have a heart for the least of these. And man, most church planters, we gotta get the tithers in, we gotta get the, you know, we gotta build an organization, right? We gotta get stable. And he's like, man, you're not gonna grow a great church with that approach. Maybe not. But I'm a fraud. if I don't love the way God loved, the way God describes his love in the life of the Good Samaritan. I'm a hypocrite. I don't value myself. I don't value my relationship with God. And I certainly don't value another human being on the planet if I can't give to someone who can't give back. See, James talks about that. This is pure religion to give to the widow and the orphan. People who could never repay you or give you a position of clout can never tithe to your church. See, worth... comes down to how we see others. He unpacks it in the next few verses in chapter 2. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? How can you claim that you know me, that you're connected to me, that you're trusting me if you don't see the world the way I see the world? How can you claim then he goes on, he says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? think about that for a second. Don't we do that? If a homeless person walked in to our church, how would we respond? Better yet, why would we respond the way that we do? Would it be out of pity? Or will we see that person as an equal? That's the test. He goes on and he says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you keep the royal law as found in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourselves, to love people with no regard as you naturally love yourself without regard. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin You are guilty of breaking the law. See, what is he saying? The spiritual principle that we hear all the time, your treasure reveals your heart, right? You've heard that in Matthew chapter 6. Why don't we go ahead and turn there? I want to just read it to you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the whole body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be healthy. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, so many times pastors teach this verse and it says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so you need to put your treasure in the church so that your heart will follow after God. And I'm telling you that is the stupidest thing you could do. Your money will not change your heart. God will change your heart. That's a dark view that somehow I can approach God with a transaction and my heart will be changed. And if that's your light, how great is the darkness? See, God says, come to me as you are. Let me work in your heart. Why? Because you have value where you are, just like everybody. And you want to know what you really treasure? Look at where you invest your time. Look where you invest your money. That will reveal what you treasure. Is God a part of your everyday life? Is God somehow in the middle of your checkbook? And what I want to say today is maybe your first step in aligning your heart and your treasure is for you to use some of your money to bless another person in Jesus' name. And I mean in Jesus' name. You're going to them and you're telling them, you know, why are you helping me? Because I want you to know that God loves you and someone in His church loves you. And maybe that's the best way for you to align your treasure in your heart. And it's a great gut check for us as a church. Is our money being used to bring glory to Jesus or to create a sense of comfort for ourselves? Because, see, where we spend our money really reveals our heart, what we value who we trust, and what really has worth in our life. So how money determines worth and how Jesus determines worth are worlds apart. So the closing question is, what or who will you allow to shape your view of worth? Worth.